Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Good morning. It's good to be up here again today and bringing a word to you. Always encouraged to, to stand up here and preach to the people of God. It's always a delight knowing how well it's received and how encouraged I am by your uh, just mentioning them how much it helps you. So there's always a motivation to preach. I'm going to be looking at another psalm today. I, when I used to pastor, I would always, not always, but I would preach on the psalms probably four or five times a year. I would often take breaks from a normal series, just take a week off and, and preach in the, uh, on a psalm, a short psalm, or a long, couple series on a longer psalm. And the reason I did that was when I was in seminary, I really didn't have a mentor there. there none, most of the men who were, were there, I, I disagreed with in ministry. They were going in more of a church growth type movement, and I was going away from that. And so I, I went to history to try to find mentors. And one of the, the most important mentors that I found was Augustine. And uh, so I studied his ministry, and I sort of patterned my view of ministry after his. And one of the things about his ministry that I loved was that he was a man who uh, loved the Psalms. His ministry centered around the Psalms in a very unique way. Uh, he knew the Psalms, memorized the Psalms at almost any moment's notice. You could ask him to stand up and he could give a, 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 anything from a homily to a, a full-length sermon on almost any Psalm that you picked. Uh, his people, often he would uh, quote a Psalm, uh, maybe a, one or two verses. And the people were so immersed in those psalms as well from listening to them read. Remember, these are people that had no Bibles. Uh, they just, what they heard in church and what they sang in church was, was all that they had. But he would start quoting a psalm and, and the people would recognize it and they would quote it with him. And Augustine would stop the quote, only meaning to quote one or two verses, and the church would continue with the rest of the psalm. That's how well they knew the psalms. And what's ironic about Augustine is that he wanted to spend his life after conversion, just being a, a contemplative Christian, going out in a monastery somewhere and just studying philosophy and studying religion and studying Christianity and writing books to a, at a very scholarly level, uh, like a, a university or seminary level. And in his irony, God put him in a ministry that was basically a poor, illiterate group of, of Punics, which are North Africans, where he spent his whole life ministering, very seldom traveled from there. So a great man, and his life was centered on the Psalms. And that's sort of when I pastored uh, what I did as well. And I, I kind of miss that not being in the Psalms all the time. So we'll look at today at Psalm 90, and the next week we'll look at another. So I'm not sure which one. It may be Psalm uh, 80. But uh, we'll see what, that, what happens next week. But Psalm 90 is a very wonderful psalm. It's, it's not a, a highly known psalm or a very popular psalm. In fact, Mark, when we were talking after church last week, he said, have you ever preached on Psalm 90? And I thought, well, I memorized that psalm years ago because it's one of my favorite psalms. And I, I thought, I don't know if I did or not. So I went back and unfortunately, all my notes when I preach to the pastor are lost because they're on a, a hard drive that crashed. And I, I still have the hard drive. I just don't want to spend the, the three or four grand I was told to get those sermons off. So I had to go on sermon audio. And yeah, I think 2007 it was that I preached on this. But uh, it was three sermons. We're reducing it down to one uh, today. But it's a wonderful psalm. And what's unique about it is it's not a psalm by David or a psalm by Asaph, who we looked at last week. It's a psalm written by Moses, the man of God. Moses, the man of God. And we're just going to jump right into it. We're going to look at the outline real quick. Or let me read it first, and then we'll look at the outline, and then just start getting through the psalm and, and seeing what it says and how it applies to us today. 
So Psalm, beginning of book four, remember the Psalms are divided up into different books. This is the final book, book four. I believe it's the final, there may be one more, but book four. And the title is God's Eternity and Man's Transitoriness, a man's uh, temperance. Uh, a prayer of Moses, a man of God. It starts out, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they are like grass, which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew, towards evening it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury, and we have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Let's pray. Our Father, we have a wonderful psalm here in front of us, a wonder, wonderful inspired text that you've given uh, not only to the Old Testament saints, but to us today in the church to, to read and, and to, to be benefited from. And we ask that you would help us uh, to understand these words, Father, in a way that would affect us uh, to good, that would, a way that would drive us to holiness, a way that would make us see uh, not only you, but we would see Christ in a new way, see ourselves in a new way, Father, that we would uh, call upon you uh, to return and to help us, that we would find a refuge in you and in Christ and that you would uh, help us Father and satisfy us and make us glad Lord. We pray for any here who don't know Christ that there'd be enough of the gospel in here so that they would see and believe uh, in, in the one who inspired these words Father, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name, amen. The, the sermon we looked at last week, Psalm 73, I remember saying it had a, a very a distinct outline. We had one word that we saw three times, and that word sort of marked the outline of that psalm. Uh, this psalm is a little bit more difficult. We don't have a one simple word that marks out different sections of the psalm, but there are, are definite changes in the thoughts and, and the flow of thought and the emotions of the writer that kind of give us an understanding of a, a pretty good outline we can go by. Uh, first of all, in verse 1, through 10, uh, it's a psalm about restoration. The title I think I had up here was Repentance and Restoration, a prayer for repentance and restoration. And in verses 1 through 10, we have the foundation for that restoration and, and confession. That, that is an understanding of God's imminence, his immutability, and in man's transitoriness. There's a great contrast we're going to see here that God is permanent, he's imminent, he's immutable, he's unchangeable, he's eternal, where man is fleeting. 
Uh, his life comes and goes in a moment. And there's a great contrast there, and that is the foundation for restoration. Then we see in verses 11 through 12 sort of the application of that. How should we respond if we understand that this great gap between man and God. And finally, we have an appeal to God's compassion. When we realize the difference, when we realize what we should do, then there will be a call, a reliance, uh, an asking of God for his compassion and a resting and waiting in God for that compassion to be given to us and be delivered to us. So let's start with the foundation uh, for this restoration. The text says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, O Lord, you gave birth to the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The picture here, what we're doing here is building a house. Uh, there are two parts of a house. There's a foundation, and there, there's the house that that foundation rests upon. A house is the place of refuge. It's a place of comfort, uh, a peace and safety. A home should be places of, of refreshment and protection from the hardness and harshness of the world. God here is said to be a dwelling place for his people. And this is a word or idea that's constantly being used out in the scripture, that God is the refuge of his people. Those who come to him will be protected, they will be cared for, and they will be secure. Deuteronomy 33:27 says, the eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are everlasting arms, so Israel dwells securely. Psalm 71, the psalmist calls on God to be a, a rock of habitation to which I may continually come for you have commanded me for you have given commandments to save me for you are my rock and my fortress so here not just a habitation but an impenetrable fortress made of rock is what God is to this psalmist in whom he can take refuge or, or Psalm 91 the very next chapter from where we are now uh, says this he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. This protection was not only given to, to Moses' generation, but it says to all generations, from generation to generation. You are a, a, a refuge to all generations. We go back to Abraham when he was called out of the land. God was his refuge. Uh, his children, as they traveled through the Middle East in their exile, Israel's enslavement, their suffering in Egypt, and their wilderness wanderings, when they lived in tents. God was their refuge. In their conquests, uh, the bright and dark days of the monarchy, uh, the Jews saw God as his refuge. Even when they were cast out of the land in judgment and, and thrown into foreign lands and, and, and ruled over by pagans, uh, Ezekiel says this, therefore thus says the Lord, again he's speaking here to exiled Jews who are living under the oppression of pagan kings. He says this, Though I remove them from far away from among the nations, and though I have scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. I have a sanctuary here is the idea of a refuge, a place where we go to for protection. So even when God casts them out of the land and brings them into captivity in Babylon, God is still their refuge. And his care and concern for them is not some recent event. It's as existed as long as God has been God. And Moses he sort of takes three steps backwards to show us this. He starts with, with, with these generations. God is the God. He's our refuge to all generations going as far back as mankind has existed. As far as his people have been there, God has been their refuge. But then he goes back further. He goes, now go, go back to when the mountains were born. When the mountains were made, when they were raised up. Any of you kids ever seen a mountain before? 
Now, I've seen big ones, but I've never been to like the Rocky Mountains or something like that, or the Alps where there's these massive uh, pieces of rock sticking out of the ground. So I can imagine uh, how amazing they are. But what do you think of when you see a mountain? Something that's just going to disappear. You're going to come back the next day. It's going to be gone. It's going to blow away. No, you think of something permanent. It's going to be there for a long time. Not only that, but what else you think of when you see a mountain? It, it's been there for ages. How old are mountains? They're, they will going by the, the modern time frame. They, they say they're millions of years old. They've taken millions of years to get there. So a mountain is something that, that, that's permanent. It's something that, that exists. It cannot be moved. God was there when those mountains were raised. He was the people's refuge as far back as that mountain. Then he goes back even further than that. What about till the time that the earth was made? God gave birth to the earth and the world, it says here. There's two words here for earth and world. The earth is basically just the land. It's Eretz. It's a land where the word for world here is the idea of the inhabited world, the, uh, the world that exists, the life that is on this earth. All those things God gave birth to. So his being a refuge goes all the way back before God made the world. He was their refuge. And finally, he takes this idea and, and throws it all the way back in eternity. He takes the anchor of our soul and puts it all the way in eternity from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. So this refuge that Moses uh, takes comfort in. It is the everlasting God. All other men, all other pagan gods uh, cannot move him, cannot touch him, cannot touch or move those who call to him for refuge. So it's a great comfort here uh, to Moses that God, the everlasting God, is their refuge, is their comfort. This, again, is the foundation for all restoration. All who come to God to be restored must acknowledge that he is the eternal creator of all that is. And it's important for the following reasons. First, it means that God has established as creator a, a moral universe and an order to that universe, and he expects it to be obeyed. He expects people to live under the rules that he, as the creator, has established for mankind. As creator, he gets to make the rules that tells mankind how we function and how we live. He established laws that protect us and allow for human societies and individuals to flourish. Uh, secondly, uh, it makes every man accountable and answerable to the creator. If you break these laws that God has set up or established, then you have to answer to him. He's the one who made them. He's the one who holds you accountable. And when you break them, you will stand before him and explain to him what you have done and why you have done it. And he will sit in judgment of you for breaking those commands. Uh, this does away with the idea of human autonomy, uh, that man is somehow autonomous and does whatever he wants to. But when I argue or debate with uh, atheists, this always is the foundation of what they believe, that we are autonomous, that we owe nothing to God. We are not answerable to any God at any time and anywhere. Uh, for example, in, in discussing abortion, uh, when they find out that I have religious beliefs and those are, my beliefs of abortion are grounded in those beliefs, they say, they'll say, well, uh, what about when God uh, makes a stillborn baby? Or what about when a, a baby dies in infancy? Isn't that abortion? Isn't that infanticide? Uh, then how can you be against it if God does it? And, and the point here is that, no, God is the giver of life. He's the creator. All life comes from him. 
And he has the ability and the right to take that life anytime he wants to back to himself, whether it's a child in the womb or whether it's a child in infancy, whether you're a 90-year-old man or a 15-year-old child, God as the creator has the right to give and to take life as he pleases. They're assuming that they're autonomous, that we do whatever we please. No, God is not. He has the right to do whatever he wants to, and anybody that questions that is in disagreement with God himself. So this first step towards restoration to those who have wandered or strayed from God is an acknowledgement that God is the creator, uh, that he has the right uh, to judge or hold accountable those who have broken his laws, and also he has the right to d display mercy or show compassion on those who break those laws if they come with the right frame of mind, and we'll see more about that later. Secondly, we can come to God because he is also a covenant-making God. He offers promises uh, to those who come to him. He is a dwelling place, a refuge, a protector, a provider uh, to any who will acknowledge him. So God isn't, isn't just the creator who, who surrounds himself and blocks himself off from anybody approaching him. No, a refuge, in order to be a refuge, you have to go inside of that refuge. You have to be accepted. If you were going into a, a medieval castle and, and you knocked on the door, they would have to open that door and allow you in. Well, God is a refuge in that he allows people in to that place of refuge. And what we call that in the Old Testament and the New is he makes covenants with people. That if you come to him on his terms, the terms that he clearly lays out, we'll see more about those later, then he will allow you to come in. That that judgment that he gives you, that's over you because of your breaking his laws, that will be cast aside. And God will bring you in and allow you that place of refuge. The idea of generations here uh, is a covenant term. We saw it last week in Psalm 73 where, where David had spoken about uh, his thoughts, his idea of holiness being useless, that it would have betrayed the generations of your children. So the idea of generations here, it's a covenant term, a generation of people that God has chosen, he has selected, and that now he is going to, to comfort and to protect. Anyone who comes to God with an attitude of penance, seeking forgiveness, will find a God who is more than willing, more than gracious to enter a covenant with you. And the most astounding promises are made for those who remain in that covenant and stay faithful to God. Again, we'll see more about this as we progress. So there's this idea of restoration, of its foundation being upon God being the creator, him being a refuge we can go to and find comfort, find help and protection in. Now, why do we need this restoration? We've hinted at this a little bit in explaining about God being a law-giving God and that law being broken, but Moses goes and explains more about this. Uh, there's a need for restoration. And the reason that there is a need for restoration is what we see in, in the following verses. If we look at... Um, Verse 3, you turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight, or as yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood, they fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass, with sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Towards evening it fades and withers away. Now what's being spoken of here, there are basically two judgments that are being called out here. Uh, the first one is the idea of turning back into dust. You, God, who are refuge, who are creator, you turn man back into dust. And the second judgment is referring to a flood. Now, we all know that what was the judgment placed upon Adam when he fell? 
you will turn back into dust. You came from dust, and as a result of your sin, you will go back into dust. Uh, that's very clear, and there is a reference to that here, but the word dust here is a little bit different than the word used in Genesis chapter 3. The word here, uh, it's more of a violent term. It has the idea of, of, of something being crushed or, or something being pulverized. Uh, Job uses this word a lot. He says to his friends, how long will you torment me and crush me with your words? Of the wicked, Job says, therefore he knows their works and he overthrows them in the night and they are crushed. Uh, even when Isaiah speaks of Christ himself in Isaiah 53, he says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting himself to grief. That word crushed here is the same exact word that is being used here for returning to dust. Uh, Isaiah uses it quite a bit in other places in the uh, examples of oppressing the poor. He says, what do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts. So it's a very violent uh, act where a person is judged or crushed or uh, made rendered useless or meaningless. Uh, the second judgment here is also uh, the idea of a flood sweeping away. Now we know throughout the Bible, but what are floods used for? What's the biggest flood in the Bible used for? It was judgment, right? The, the Noah's flood, why did God bring that flood? Well, it was a judgment upon the world. The sin of the world had gotten so bad that God decided he was gonna judge the world and he did so with the flood. So any reference in the Bible to a flood sweeping people away, it's always gonna have behind it the idea of justice, of judgment, of swift, quick judgment. Uh, again, floods are swift. They come almost unannounced. Uh, they are destructive and unstoppable, especially in dry regions where the ground is hardened uh, and the first few inches of water just run off it like concrete. There's these videos on, on YouTube you can watch where it'll be a camera on this dry riverbed and you start to see this, this little trickle. Uh, actually, it's mud when it first comes through. This mud starts to flow. And at within three or four minutes, there's this big, massive torrent of water coming down this valley with uh, big logs in it, with trees in it, with houses in it. And it takes a matter of minutes. For, and there's not a cloud in the sky. So wherever this happened, it's miles away, this water just flowing and, and causing this flood. They're, they're swift, they're quick, and they are decisive. That's what's being spoken of here. A, a pounding into dust and a swift quick judgment by a flood. Again, both of these are related to judgment. And, and this is in contrast also, not just the, the swiftness of this, of this judgment, of the crushing and of the flood, but also it's contrasted again to God's eternality. Uh, if you live, it says basically here that, that a, a Day in, a day in God's sight is a thousand years. A day in our sight is a thousand years or is a watch in the night. The idea here is not simply to give a, a chronological uh, time reference that we can use to predict when Christ came, that we can say, well, one day is a thousand. Uh, it's basically just a metaphor to show how long God is, how, how eternal he is. If you were born in the year 1123, you would be a thousand years old. If you died tomorrow, your whole lifespan would simply be a single day in God's timing or a watch in the night, which is four years. So this metaphor is used to describe uh, our life is so fleeting compared to God. It's nothing. It goes by in a moment. Again, emphasizing the transitoriness of God, of man in the light of God. Uh, again, they're like, we're like grass of the field. We, we sprout up. 
Uh, we flourish for a very short time. Uh, the sun comes and then we're gone. We disappear. The wind, hot wind comes. You do uh, anybody go on driving looking at wildflowers around here in the springtime? How long's your window? I remember there's times where Geneva and I say, we need to go looking for wildflowers. Watch them, drive by them. And you put it off a week and they're gone. That, that, that's the life of mankind in, in the light of God's eternality. It's quick, it's short, it, it almost appears to be nothing. I think of my great-grandfather. Uh, I'm probably the last of the grandchildren that are gonna remember him when my, my dad's generation dies. I was the oldest grandson, and uh, I think my sister doesn't remember him. He died in 1975. And uh, just think, when I'm gone, every memory of him is gonna disappear. Nobody's gonna be able to say, hey, re remember Alfred Affle. Remember what he did. He's gonna be, his memory is gonna be destroyed, gonna be gone. Uh, the house, when I was at my grandmother's last time, we drove by the house he lived in, it's gone. He ran a tire shop for a number of decades in downtown Reading, Pennsylvania. We drove by it, it's completely gone. Every memory of him will be gone, maybe a short 60, 70 years after his death. That, that's, that's mankind's life. We're, we're gonna die and Nobody's gonna remember who you even were, unless you, you were famous, but most of us, our memory will be gone in a very, very short time. And again, that should humble us deeply, that our life is so short. So that man is simply, as we'd say, a flash in the pan would be a modern metaphor that we can use to describe our short existence. Now, if that's not bad enough, it gets worse. It gets much, much worse. The question is, well, why is man's life so short? Why did God make man, uh, this glorious creature that, that is stamped with his image, who was made to, to have fellowship, to commune with God, why does God pound him into dust? Why does God sweep him away like a flood? The answer to that is in verses 7 through 11. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury, and we have finished our years like a sign. So it's not just death that's the problem. It goes far, far deeper than death. One commentator says this, we are too apt to look upon death as no more than a debt owing to nature, whereas it is not so. If the nature of man had continued in his primitive purity and rectitude, there would have been no such debt owing to it, but it is a debt to the justice of God, a debt to the law. When dying, we are paying a debt to God's justice. We're paying a debt to his law. Remember the story in Pilgrim's Progress, uh, the first time he meets evangelist. Remember what his name is, kids, at this point? What's his name? You guys should all know Pilgrim's Progress, like the back of your hands. What's his name? The man. He's not pilgrim until the, the burden on his back falls off at the wicked gate. So here he's just a man, the man. And he meets evangelist, and he's got this burden on his back. And evangelist sees him, and he notices he, he's crying. And he says, what are you crying about? He says, well, I, I read in this book that th there are two things that are going to happen. One is I'm going to die, and the other one is I'm going to face judgment. He says, and I, I don't want to do the first, and I can't do the second. So Evangelist says, well, you know, why not just kill yourself? And if life is so bad, just end it all right now and have it over with. And Pilgrim says this. He says, basically, he says, not willing to die, or he says, 
evangelist says, not willing to die since life is so attended with so many evils. And Pilgrim responds this way, or the man responds this way, because I fear that his burden that is upon, this burden that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave. And Pilgrim understands at this point that the death that he does, that, he, that happens to him, will not simply end when he loses consciousness. I like that idea of, of take me lower than the grave. Put him six feet in the ground. His body may lie there, but his soul goes deeper into the pits of hell where he will face judgment. So this idea of, of death just being natural, uh, it's not the case. There, there's a judgment. There's a wrath that God is going to pour out upon man. Uh, which is a result of his anger and his wrath. Uh, verse 7 and 8 describes the terror of God's anger. It is something uh, that is fearful, that is terrifying, for we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. Uh, the anger here is a reference to the nostrils or to the face. Uh, you know, when a person's angry, when your mom or dad are angry at you, you can see it in their face, can't you, kids? You know they're mad. It's not an emotion that you can simply hide or put away. It's expressed in the way that you look. The second word here, the word wrath, literally means a heat, and it all, can also refer to venom, or it can refer to a poison or rage. It's something uh, that is dangerous, that we don't want to come in contact with, that, that we uh, stay away from. So these are not emotions that you want to provoke in somebody, especially somebody as powerful as God himself, as your creator, yet that is exactly what happens with mankind with his sin. Now, why? Well, because of what they cause. God's anger, it says it consumes us, it dismays us. Like anger and wrath, these are, are very strong words. They mean that we are destroyed, that we are spent, that we are finished by God's wrath. Dismayed has the idea of being terrified by something, being overwhelmed by it. One of the Hebrew dictionaries that I use translates it this way. It says, to be horrified, to be out of one's senses. A man who realizes that he's under the wrath of God, he's going to be in a sense, senseless in what he does. Uh, a great example of this is in Isaiah chapter 2, where you read of the Lord's coming and this terrifying day of his wrath. And what do the people do? It says that they run into caves. And keep in mind, there are no uh, cave dwellers. There are no people who like to go exploring caves in the ancient world. The Israelites had a, a great fear of, of caves, of being underground. It wasn't natural to want to go and, and live in caves. Yet here, out of the fear of the wrath of God, they go and they crawl into these caves, deep into these caves. And what do they do under there? They, they pray that the caves will fall in on them. That is more likable to them than standing and facing the wrath of God. So the, this is a terrifying thing to stand in the presence of God's wrath. The reason for this is that it says our sins are ever before him. These are metaphors here that denote not just the, the exposure of our sins, but, but they are present before him. The phrase here, before and light, in the light of your presence, both mean something that is visibly present. It is an object of intense interest. If you have something and you want to examine it, what do you do? Well, well you, you hold it up to your face. You look at it. You scrutinize it by looking at it in, as close to your face as you can and turning it and looking at it. That is what God is doing with our sins. They are in his face. They are present before him, and he is scrutinizing and examining those sins. The presence here, it, it is the word literally, the word face. They're in front of, they're before his face. Our sins are seen by God, and they are being scrutinized by him. The picture again is something being held before a face to be analyzed. 
And it's not only the sins that we do in public, at work, or among our families. Uh, rather, it's the secret sins, it says, that he is looking at that are before his face. So those sins that you do in your bedroom uh, with the lights out, those sins you do when you're by yourself in your closet, the sins you do on your phone or your computer when nobody else is around. God sees those sins. Those are the sins that he's holding up in his face for the purpose of scrutiny. Those sins of your heart that nobody else sees. A person can be standing right next to you and will have no idea what is in your heart. If there's sin there, God scrutinized that sin as well. So nothing escapes his scrutiny. The writer of Hebrews says this, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the, before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So there's two things that should frighten us there. One, that all that we do, nothing is hidden, are laid bare before him and with whom we have to do. The one that we will give account to sees all that we do, all that we think, whether it's public, private, or within our heart. He sees it all and scrutinizes it. Again, this should bring terror to the one who has any sense of God's power of their own sinfulness. Now, what is life, 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 uh, excuse me, life like under this wrath? This is described in verses 9 through 10. It says this, For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due thee? What happens to a man or woman who, who has a sense of this sin, this wrath? What is their life like? Well, it's a perfect description here. Our, our years are consumed in your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You've placed our iniquities before you. Says, For all our days have declined in your fury, and we have finished our years like a sigh. The real verse I want to look at here is verse 9. Uh, again, for, this is a, a purpose, a reason. All of our days have declined in your fury, and we have finished our years like a sigh. Our, our years are, are like a whisper. It's just something that, that is barely perceptible. The idea here is a sigh, a whisper, or a, a quiet rumbling sound. Your, your, your life, your 70 or 80 years of life, in light of God's wrath and judgment, it, it's just a, a little sigh, a little barely perceptible whisper. The pride of that life, it says, is one of labor and sorrow. Pride is something that you, that you hold up, that you boast about. And, and the man under God's wrath, what does he boast about? What does he have to show for his life? Nothing but labor and sorrow. When I think about this, this verse here, when I read it and, and I meditate upon it, I think of uh, Mark Twain. Uh, most people, when we think of Mark Twain, we think of a, a very a successful author, a very whimsical, uh, earthy, sagacious character. But he had a very, very hard, very, very difficult sad life. Uh, his wife, uh, very early in their marriage, died. He made most of his money, uh, was very successful in the early part of his life when his, uh, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn came out in other books. So he, he rose to fame rather quickly. But uh, his wife died very early in her marriage. She was, I think, in her late 30s when, he, when she died. A uh, very grievous event for him. Uh, he could have easily retired to a quiet life with the money that he made from his books. But instead, he made a number of bad investments and had to go back on the road and give speeches in order to make money and support his family. Uh, he believes that that was very taxing and, and made his family suffer a great deal. He had four daughters. 
Uh, three of them died. One lived till 1962, maybe that year before I was born, his, his oldest daughter lived to. But the other three died. Uh, one of them, it's a very sad occasion. Uh, her name was um, Jean, I believe, and she was an epileptic. She had uncontrollable fits, which in those days were there's not much you could do about it. She was institutionalized. And she came home for her first Christmas in a number of years. And then the Twains had uh, big Christmas celebrations when their family was intact. There was decorations and food and festivities and, and, and uh, uh, present exchange. It was a very big event in their lives. And, and Jean came home, and she spent all that time decorating the house, trying to, to relive those glory days to encourage her father with a sense of nostalgia. And, uh, the day before Christmas, December 24th, uh, she went to take a bath and got in the tub and had a, an epileptic fit and drowned. The day before Christmas, he, his fa her father discovered her. And it just destroyed him. And that was his life. Uh, there was a time where, where he went back in his older age, older time, to, uh, to visit the city of Hannibal, Missouri. And that was where he was, lived as a young man and a child. And it's, it's sort of the background of where Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer took place on that uh, river along Mississippi. And it was a big event when he got there. You know, everybody w was going to see uh, Mark Twain as he visits his childhood home for the first time in umpteen years, 50, 60 years. And they all followed him down to the river where he'd look at the Mississippi where he, he worked and played as a kid. And when he saw it, he, he just stood there and wept uncontrollably. Just looking back and thinking of his childhood, thinking of all the things that have happened to him, all the sadness and all the sorrow in his life. He stood there and publicly wept like a baby in front of all those people, just the sadness of his life. Uh, somebody asked him towards the end of his life, he says, you know what, what are your thoughts about God, Mr. Twain? And he said, well, me and the Almighty are not on very good terms right now. And he meant the sadness in my life has driven me towards God. So a man that was famous, a man that was wealthy, uh, when it was over, his life is nothing but sorrow, labor, and sadness. Uh, I think of my, um, my grandmother who passed a number of years ago. The last time uh, Geneva and I visited her, we went up and we drove her all around the city she was born in. She went to the place she was born. She went to the, the house her husband first lived in, her and my grandfather lived in. Everything we do, we spent three days just driving her around, talking to her. And uh, I remember leaving her there. And uh, she was living in assisted living, and, and she was 90 years old and absolutely bitter about everything. She was mad at her grandkids uh, for not doing things the way she wanted to. She was mad at her, her daughter. She was mad at the people living in the assisted a living place. Uh, she was going to eat by herself because she was mad at this person and that person. And I remember just walking away, thinking, you know, this, this is the last time I'm going to see her. And it was just nothing but anger and bitterness for her life. That's what I think of when, when I read this passage. Or my, my other grandmother, one more example. Uh, she was, my, this is my mother's mother. Uh, she was, uh, had dementia, uh, unresponsive for five or six years. You used to lie in the bed, you'd sit next to her and talk to her. She wouldn't acknowledge your existence. And uh, when they, they knew she was dying, uh, they, they called everybody. One of my cousins came up to visit her. And uh, again, she hadn't responded in, in years to anybody. And my cousin said, as she was drawing her last breath, she said you could see tears just running down her face. There's an example of a life of sorrow and labor. And we could do many examples. Uh, my own dad right now, caring. He, he spent a life working, uh, caring for my mother, caring for a family so that he could travel 
And now my mom, who didn't do anything to care for her body, needs him to be there almost 24 hours a day to care for her. Uh, he's free to do those things that he wanted to do, that he, he saved to do. Now he's stuck caring, not stuck, I don't mean it in a bad way. He, he's delighted to do it, but it's not the life he planned. And you can hear the sorrow and the loneliness and the sadness in his voice when I call him. Or my own son just walked away from the Lord and there's a constant complaining about how hard life is for him. All the, the bad relationships that he's been and all the complaining, all, all the, the things that, that God is doing to him and how hard his life is. Well, he's not even 30 yet. And there's a life of, of sorrow, a life of labor and sadness. That, that is the life cut out for those who are under the wrath of God. Sorrow and sadness. The question then is, what about us? What about those of us who are the children of God? Is that same life for us? Is that the fate that we face? And, and no, no. There are those who, who come to God who are, are surrounded by his loving kindness. Uh, we are, are different. Our life will not be smooth and easy. Uh, there will be hardship, but there will be a difference in our life as we see as we progress to the end of this psalm. Uh, this life of sorrow uh, prompts Moses to ask a rhetorical question. You kids know what a rhetorical question is? You study that yet? Well, let me give an example. It's basically a question that there's an answer to already. Let's give an example. Let's say you're running in the house and you trip and fall and hurt yourself. And through your tears, your mother stands there and she looks down and says, haven't I told you not to run in the house? Now, chances are your mother's told you that, right? What she's saying there is a very clever way of saying, I've told you not to run in the house. This is your fault. That's a rhetorical question. You know the answer to it. They're just trying to make their point stronger. So, and that's what Moses is doing here. A rhetorical question says, who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Now, that doesn't expect somebody to raise their hand and say, I do. No, the answer is nobody does. Nobody understands that power. Nobody understands the fury of God's anger and lives according to that knowledge. What Moses is saying here is that nobody really understands the power of God and God's wrath, and nobody responds with the proper fear and respect that is due that power. One commentator says this, has anyone fully reckoned with the strength of God's wrath? Have we dealt with the reality of the overflow of God's justice in a way that counts for the fear that is due him? And the answer is nobody has. Nobody knows God that well. Nobody knows his anger that well. So any fear that we have, any uh, trepidation we have before him, it's not even close to what we should have. Not even close. And the resounding answer is no, we have not. And how should we respond to this? Is it hopeless that none of us have that sense of knowledge? And none of us are able to respond in a way that would be uh, correspond to that knowledge or are we just without hope and, and, and we're not and the next verse tells us what our response should be he says this so in light of this fury in light of this anger he says so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom how do we respond to the, the amount the small tiny amount of knowledge that we have of God's anger and wrath well by numbering our days so that we may present to him a heart of wisdom. 
The idea of numbering our days is not simply counting your days as a uh, person would in a cell block, counting the days through his release, a little you know, marks on a cell. Well, that, that's not what he's talking about here. The, the example here is, is that we are to order our days, we are to structure our days in a way that corresponds to knowing that our life is fleeting and that we are under God's judgment and God's wrath. Let me give an example of myself, not because I, I think I'm more godly than anybody, but uh, I've done a lot of interviews in, in this church and other churches asking people about their testimony, and they don't just say, well, I, I was saved at such and such an age, and stop there. There's always discussion about the change that they went through. Uh, the, the, the ramifications of their faith and how they were a different person after they were saved. And that's what's being talked about here. How do we live in light of the things that we know and we believe about God? And for myself, I came to Christ out of a, a, a drug experience. I was into the, the drug, the rock and roll, and all that lifestyle. And, and I, I knew before I was even saved that my life was on a crash course for destruction. I was 19 years old, and I can honestly say that my life at 19 was a life of, of sorrow and sadness. There was misery. I, I wished I was my dog lying there sleeping all day so that I could just be at peace and not have anything bother me. And I came to Christ. I realized that this was a way of destruction. And again, this was just like a 1.1 equals 2 understanding of God's wrath. There's not this great profound sense of doom or judgment. I didn't have dreams about going to hell. There was just a sense that this direction was going to lead me to destruction. And when I heard the gospel, I responded. I said, that is it. That is what I need. I've been around religious people all my life, uh, devoted Catholics, devoted Jews, and I saw that this idea of, of working for your salvation just didn't cut out. I was doing that for five or six years of my life, counting up all my good deeds, thinking, well, if I have enough good deeds here, then God will accept me. And I, I pray that, and I tell God that's what I believe, but when it was over and done, I said, this can't be it. There's got to be a way to be sure. Uh, my neighbors, they're not sure. Uh, my grandparents who are Jews, Orthodox Jews, they're not sure. How can I be sure? And, and I said to God, if you show me what it is, I will do it. And then I read about Christ. He says, believe in me. Trust in me. Put aside your works. You can't do enough for me, but believe me. When I heard that, I knew that that is what it was. That's the difference between what I see now and what I see out there in the world. That's the difference between what I hear now and what I see in my Catholic friends or what I see in my Jewish relatives or what I see in my drunken friends. It's a gift that I receive. And I, I received that gift. But I, I knew that the course that I was on was still a course of destruction, that I couldn't simply receive him and continue on that course. So I started planning. Okay, how do I get out of this life? How do I change? How do I become more of what God wants me to be? So I, I started praying. I, I started reading. I had a, a, a Bible that I found in my uh, parents' uh, bookshelf. It was an old uh, King James Bible, a red letter only. I, I'd go upstairs and I'd read it again and again, understood nothing of it. King James just didn't register to me. I'd spend eight hours a day sometimes. I'd come home from work, shut, eat, shut my door, and just read that book for hours, trying to understand what it said. And, and I prayed, God, help me. What do I do? Uh, you say in your word that I can find you here, so I'm going to read this and learn it. And I did, and I, I prayed. And then God ultimately brought me help. 
He brought friends in my life who were Christians. Uh, they brought me books. I met another friend who introduced me to a church. So I went to a church. I had a pastor. I had regular teaching. Uh, they introduced me to these things, and I continued to pray. And as I learned, my life changed. I, I chose to do things because they were honoring to God and not do things because they didn't honor God. Well, what is that but numbering my days? I'm ordering my days. I'm structuring my life. I'm examining it and adjusting it so that I am doing what God wants me to do. And this went on and on in my life and continues to this very day. I'm numbering. I'm ordering my days, assuring that I'm living in a way that pleases, that honors God, that brings glory to him. Again, I was examining my life, I was comparing it to God's revealed word and adjusting it so that it matched what he had revealed. Now, what is the result of that? The psalmist continues, teach us a number of days so that, here's the reason we want to do this, so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. That's a strange term to us, a heart of wisdom. I want to take, give my heart to you, Lord, and present it to you as a heart of wisdom. And a way to think about this is think about the judgment day when we're being judged for our works. Now, don't be afraid of that term. What it means is that God is going to examine our life to make sure our life is consistent with the testimony that we had. Were you a Christian? Did you claim to follow Christ? Did you claim to be his disciple? Yet go out and prostitute yourself out for the world. Your works will not get you in, get you into heaven. So this idea of God looking at our life and seeing, does it match the confession that you had? Does it match the heart that I gave you? And imagine on that day, taking out our heart and presenting it to God and saying, Lord, look at my heart, God. Is this a heart of wisdom? Is this a heart that has been driven to please and serve you despite all my failings? Was this heart not driven to bring glory and bring honor to you? And God will look at that heart and then accept it if that is so. So this is the idea of, of presenting a heart of wisdom, a heart that has been tuned to God's voice, a heart that looked to God for direction, for help, for strength, and for power. That is the result of numbering our days in a way that is in accordance with God's revealed will and God's purposes. One person says this, those that would learn this arithmetic, this numbering our days, must pray for divine instruction, must go to God and beg him to teach them by his spirit to put, up, to put them upon considering and give them a good understanding. When we, we, when we number our days to good, to good purpose, we thereby our hearts are inclined and engaged in serious godliness. So it simply means submitting ourselves to the will of God looking for him to teach us, to guide us, to strengthen us through his spirit, to consider what he says and put it into practice with the best ability that he has given us. That is numbering our days. And when we do that, we can present a heart of wisdom to God, the God that has strived to serve him and please him. Now, finally, this psalm ends with, with an appeal for God to return. There's no presumption here. The psalmist has, has went through in his mind uh, the steps of restoration. Uh, he seems to have uh, restored himself. Now he, we assume he is doing this teaching. He's numbering his days. Uh, he wants to present a heart of wisdom. Now, there's no presumption here where, okay, just doing this means God is going to come back. There's still a call for God to return to him and to help him and to assist him in his life. And also, 
I say him here, this is probably more of a communal prayer of, of Moses praying for the nation. So it's a, a plurality here of do this for us, God. Do this for your people. And he says this in verse 13, beautiful words here. It says, do return, O Lord, long how, Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. In other words, Lord, have pity on us. You see our estate. You see how we're grieved by our sin. You see that we, we recognize this wrath and that we've responded. We put our trust in you. We are now numbering our days. Now have pity upon us. Have mercy upon us, God. It says, oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. And when I, when I go back and think about the, those early days of my faith, uh, yet there, there was a sense of the wrath of God. But when I, I trusted in Christ, that, that was gone. That sense of wrath, just, I knew it was there, but I knew it didn't push aside. And, and God's loving kindness was there. I didn't know how to define it, but I knew that, that when I sinned, and I sinned grievously during those days, constantly going back into the sin that he delivered me from, and there was repentance, uh, there were tears crying out to him for help, and, and it was this great sense of God's forgiveness at that time as well. So it wasn't just, oh, God is angry with me, I need to do this, or he's going to crush me. No, there was a great sense of his loving kindness upon me, forgiving me, helping me. Even in my deepest affliction and sorrow, he was there to lift me up and encourage me. And that's what the psalmist wants here. Satisfy us. Don't just give it to us. Satisfy us with your loving kindness in the morning, that we may sing for joy all the days of our lives. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. So not just restore us, that there, there's a joy uh, that is lacking for those who are under oppression, for those who are living in sin. And one of the, the biggest keys to me that I'm living in some sin, whether it's known or unknown, is the joy of my salvation disappears. It's gone. I'm miserable. And it's that joy that the Lord has withdrawn from them in this state of rebellion that the psalmist, that Moses desperately wants so bad. We see this as well uh, in David. When David prays his confession in Psalm 51, he says, make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit, creating me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Uh, sounds like David was numbering his days as well. He wants that joy uh, back in his life that sin has removed, a joy that only God can bring and give to David. So this is what the psalmist, this is what Moses wants here. Uh, give us that joy back again, Father. Let, let us have that joy compared to the number of days that we have seen evil. Then let the work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children, not just us, but let our children see your majesty as well, the greatness, the power of your works. And let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. So there's a call out here. God, let, let your favor be upon us. Let us not die uh, like the ungodly, wh whose life is labor and sorrow and sadness. Let our works be confirmed. Let us die knowing that you look upon our life and all that we've done, you confirm. You say, well done, faithful servant. Now, how do we apply this? There are many, many ways that we could apply this. And my time is short, so I'll, I'll try to be brief as well. I'm going to do what, what, what Whitfield used to do. I love George Whitfield's preaching because at the end, uh, instead of just giving general application, he, he likes to divide people up. That's what I'm going to do here. Uh, first of all, to you young people, 
if there's one thing in my life I regret, was that I, I didn't number my days the way I wish I would have now. That there's so much time wasted. Uh, so much time given uh, to frivolous things. How much more time I wish I would have studied, I would have prayed, I would have prepared myself for the coming days of my life as a Christian. Uh, there's just so much that as a young person you just miss. Uh, so, much tri uh, tr so many trivial things that you put your trust in, that you put your faith in, that you involve your time in, that had, it been, had I been more disciplined, had I been more, more fervent in my faith, I, I think where would I be right now in my life? So do you children, examine your life. Look, look at those things. When I say children, I mean you who are, are saved, who may be young adults, uh, teens. Uh, look at your life. W what frivolities are there? What things can you remove from your life and use to devote yourself to God more? Use that time to devote yourself. So you young people, number your days. Pray for wisdom. Pray for guidance that you will be prepared for a life of faith, a life of trust, a life of obedience to God. Uh, for you single people, I, I, we addressed you a couple weeks ago. Um, what are you doing? How are you numbering your days? Are you numbering your days in a way that uh, to prepare yourself for a spouse? Are you numbering your days to make yourself a better person so that you can be a better father, a better mother, a better spouse, a better husband or wife? I remember many times in, in seminary, being, we'd get around and a lot of single people in the dorm and, and would talk about marriage and people that were in their uh, late 20s, early 30s sometimes. And I'd ask them, you know, what are you doing to prepare for a wife? Well, never thought about it. Really? You've never thought about it? Not at all. No, not really. Well, why not? Well, there's a person not numbering their days. There's a big looming thing in their life that they need great preparation for, and they're not even considering to prepare for it. So you single, you young people who are the age to be married or thinking about marriage, uh, number your days. Plan on how you're going to be a good leader if you're a young man. How are you going to be a good wife if you're a young woman? Those are things that we can prepare now. We can number our days and prepare for now. Or those of us who are married, how are we numbering our days? Uh, I've got basically 10 years left. Let's say I live to be 70. That, that's the cutoff. I've got 10 years left to number my days. And I think if I could go back and, and start renumbering, start replanning, how much I would do differently. And I'm, I'm a happy man. I, I don't look back on my life in regret. But I wish I would have known now what I knew then to go back and renumber our days. So those days that you have left, uh, number them wisely. Uh, set goals, set uh, things that you're going to do, the ways you're going to devote yourself to the Lord. Are you going to pray differently? Are you going to study differently? Are you going to memorize? There, there are many things that we can do uh, to prepare ourselves, to better ourselves in God's sight through his grace in the years to come. And for those of all my discussions have been around believers, people who, who have experienced something of God's wrath and that has driven them to find refuge in God. What about you who don't, that have not found refuge in God? What do you do? Well, th there's an answer. We, see, we saw in this early part of this psalm that God is a refuge. How do you find God as your refuge? Where do you go to find him? And David uh, and Moses, they went to the Lord. The God had revealed himself to them. Uh, he spoke to them specifically. This is who I am. My name is Jehovah or Yahweh, and this is what I want you to do. Well, where do we find that God today? Well, we find him in the person of Christ. That God came, that same God that David found refuge in, has come to this earth, 
has lived among men, has died for us, and ascended up into heaven where now he sits with all power and authority. Uh, Colossians 1.16 says this, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Now, who created everything in the beginning of Psalm 90? Who is the one who gave birth to the earth and the world? It was Jehovah. What is Paul saying here? That it was Christ who did that. He was the creator. He has come to us now. He has died for us. He's the firstborn of all creation. Uh, he's the creator of the world. He now is, uh, has authority over heavens, over the earth, over visible, invisible things, earth, thrones, or dominions. All authority he has been given, all authorities he has been given authority over. So when we go to God, we go to him. He's the one that God has appointed to men to believe in and find eternal life through. And Peter says, it's the only person God has appointed for us to find him, to reach out to him through. The person of Christ. He is not only the creator, he is the judge. The wrath that will be poured out upon you will come directly from his hands. That passage we, looked, we talked about. In Isaiah chapter 2, where the, the men and women go in, into the rocks, into caverns, uh, and pray that they will come cave in on them. We jump to Revelation, we find men doing the same thing. Who are they hiding from? The person of Christ. Jesus is returning to exact judgment upon sinners for their sin, and it's him that they are hiding from. Thinking early in Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, where... The great seals are to be opened, uh, the seals of judgment. And there's a great cry in heaven, who is worthy, who is able to open these seals? And there's not a sound. Nobody responds. Nobody is worthy in heaven to open these seals. And remember John's response. He wept. There's judgment to be brought about upon earth. And yet there's nobody worthy to bring this judgment. Mankind is going to exist in, in a sinful state forever. But then he hears a voice that Christ, he is the Lord. He is the one who is worthy. He is the one who will bring judgment, execute judgment upon the earth. And then there is great rejoicing in heaven. And it's that, that same man, that same God-man, who now calls upon you. And in chapter one, chapter back, I know people may not like this, but it says he, he stands at the door and knocks. Now people say, well, that's only for a church, but th there's a universal appeal for the gospel to every man out there who hears to come to Christ. He invites all to come to him, believe in him, put their trust in him, and all the power that was arrayed against them in bringing judgment upon them now will be poured out upon them in love and mercy and kindness. And how do we receive it? We go to him and ask. And he promises, he who comes to me, I will in no wise, no way, will I ever cast them out. So to avoid the wrath, to, to become a refuge, or be a refuge in God's arms, we go to Christ. The one who is our refuge. The one who did die for us. The one who calls us to believe and trust in him for eternal life. So let's pray and then we'll be close our worship. Our Father, we are grateful for the mercy you give us. And much of this has been harsh, Father. It's been difficult. And it's not an easy thing to speak about your wrath and your anger. 
but, but it is something that's necessary. But we're glad that as we speak of it, we can in the next sentence speak about your love and your mercy to all who come to you, Father. And we pray that there will be some here uh, who do come, who do hear uh, the, the words of Christ and, and believe upon him, Father, and, and find eternal life. And we pray for uh, any here who, who do know him and love him, you would move them to love him more, Father, and serve him more. And if there are any who are, are, are falling away, Father, who are slipping back in, into rebellion, that they would hear uh, and come forward and trust in him again, Father, believing in him as you call the people of Israel to do when they uh, turned away from you and you would restore them and encourage and help them, Father. Lord, we do love you. We thank you for the great gifts you've given us and for the blessings that we have and never let us forget them and always be mindful and desirous to have you stir up our, our thankfulness for these things, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.